This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Today's episode is a chat with president of the human rights campaign, Alfonso David. This person is incredibly interesting and also, boy, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much to Alfonso for making time. I'm in what seems to be a very busy schedule and uh, enjoy the episode. I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Alfonso David. I am the president of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer civil rights organization in the world. It's um, got that really identifiable bumper sticker or whatever the heck. For anybody that's like... (laughs) But wait, what is he talking about? It's got and actually I don't, even know, your, I don't even know your pronouns if if they're he, but um, uh, he, him, his, he, him, his. So yeah, it's that it's that equal sign. It's got that blue background. It's got that yellow, and yes. you've seen it on every car in my neighborhood <laughs> or whatever. So uh, that that is uh, that is your organization, and I was able to. I don't know which week this was. Like, I'm not sure if this is this week or last week. <laughs> I think it was last week. I was able to join. You were on a panel um, mm-hmm. that my friend Imani Rupert Gordon was on for Quality Florida. And I was able to yeah. watch. Um, my girlfriend and I watched the panel. And then I thought, maybe, perhaps, this, I'm sure, very busy right now person has time in his schedule. I don't know. And so I reached out and it was from there, but that was, that was my, um, that was such a great panel. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It was a panel about racial justice and equality and the LGBTQ movement and the current state of affairs. And what does it mean for us as LGBTQ people? What does it mean as we're going through this really difficult time? And I would say necessary time in this country and around the globe as we redefine our relationships with ourselves. People are seeing each other for the first time, which I think is incredibly exciting and unfortunate because it took so long to get here. Yes, yes. You know, another thing that struck me in watching that panel, but I mean, it's, it's, it feels like many of the things that I am seeing um, for the first time the, I don't, I don't, in my experience in the queer community, I don't remember seeing so many events, panels, you know, Zooms, whatever they are, live streams where all of the panelists are black. You know, I think like even on a topic of racial justice, 
the number of times I feel like I've seen that conversation and then it's moderated by a white person or there are white panelists. Um, you know, and of course, there are also non-Black people of color that, you know, need a seat at the table in some versions of the conversation. But when what we're talking about is Black Lives Matter becoming a global movement that now has the the level of visibility that it does, it's appropriate for it to be a panel that is all Black. And I'm just curious as to whether that has changed for you in the last, say, couple of weeks versus your experience before then. Like, are you yes. appearing? Yeah. I, you know, the visibility of people of color has been an issue for such a long time. Uh, when we talk about the marginalization of people of color, what we mean among a variety of different things, but what we mean also is that we are invisible. We are not seen. We are not on the panels that we should be on, even though we may have the most expertise. Um, there has been a consistent and persistent marginalization of people of color for such a long time in this country uh, that we are now seeing uh, a recognition, if you will, where people are saying, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize that was happening, or uh, maybe they didn't know it was happening and simply looked the other way. It is a recognition that we have to change the way we have been interacting with each other and in effect not seeing each other and so yes you uh, you're absolutely right uh, the visibility is changing people are recognizing that we have to we must address the challenges with racial justice in this country in order for us to really talk about democracy i i will say that even you know i thought about reaching out to you because so now, now, now there's space to speak. And I'm imagining this sense of, you know, the demand and the request for time in your schedule as being, you know, really unfair and potentially a huge burden in this moment. And I also thought, you know, that I can respect you enough and assume that you would be able to tell me, you know, to decline the invitation if it wasn't appropriate, if it wasn't time that you wanted to make. But that's another thing that I'm thinking a lot about is the amount mm -hmm. of labor that you're asked, being asked to do, um, not just speaking as a, a Black person, but like just in all queer spaces right now. Like it's Pride Month. I just cannot imagine what, <laughs> is, what your schedule looks like. I mean, maybe you could tell me what your schedule looks like. My schedule is objectively insane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that's what i'm imagining that makes sense to me objectively insane uh i wake up at 5 30 every morning i work out yoga biking running i used to rock climb when i could get into the rock climbing studio um but i work out every day weights something to relieve the stress and really center myself for the day and then my day starts at seven and I go sometimes until one in the morning. Uh, yesterday, I had seven events to attend and where I was actively speaking and presenting seven different events. Now, I 
understand the labor associated with this movement and this moment. But I don't have the luxury of complaining because I understand what is at stake. I understand that our movement, and when I say our movement, I mean the movement for equality for all Black lives. Black lives do does matter, and we have to care about all Black lives, all transgender lives, right? Black transgender women specifically that are being disproportionately impacted in this country. And so the responsibility to make sure that we take this moment, we seize this moment, and we advance the public discourse, and we create and transform the infrastructure so that it does support people of color is one that uh, we have to step up, we have to rise up and meet the challenge. And so even though I have a daunting schedule, uh, this is an opportunity that I have to to, uh, realize. I'm also imagining, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you even alluded to this a little bit on that panel for Equality Florida. Um, I don't, I don't think of, of the HRC as being, I think of it as being an organization that would be funded predominantly by white people. I am, I'm, I could be wrong. Um, but I think about <laughs> like that many queer organizations that are the biggest ones, you know, often are directly connected to whiteness. Because an organization mm-hmm. that serves uh, the black community, white folks don't often know to fund that organization. They don't often know who seeks services there. They don't often know who runs it. You know, there really is. I mean, this is my experience in just like being somebody who has hosted and attended and um, worked with a lot of people who work on your side of things over yeah. the years. And so I'm curious, like, is that assumption correct? It is and it isn't. Tell me. So this all stems from visibility again. Most of the people who support the human rights campaign are monthly donors giving $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month. These are monthly donors that are supporting the organization. These are not wealthy white donors. But when we talk about visibility and who actually people look to, when we talk about large institutions and who those institutions represent, we often see the big donors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Because they make large contributions and that's what the media may focus on. Sure. That's what the, you know, the, you know, the powers that be may focus on. But at its core, the organization runs and the organization is sustainable because you have people all over the country and in fact the world that have said that I am going to donate to this organization on a monthly basis to support the work that this organization is doing. And I didn't know that. I also had the same assumption coming in Mm. to the organization. And now that I'm in the organization and I understand the apparatus that supports the organization, I realize, oh, the folks that actually are really supporting the organization are not the major donors in terms of having sustainable work, uh, is the folks that support the organization on a monthly basis. So that's that's really interesting to me, and thank you for sharing that. And I think the reason that I was wondering about that assumption is because I was wondering how much education you may be having to do uh, in directed 
focused on the people who will then sustain the work of the organization. Because certainly, you know, um, my vantage point is, you know, I'm a white person who has in my, throughout my career, uh, try to speak to other white people. And so what, what I see is that, um, that is difficult sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. But remember. Yeah. Sometimes, um, you know, white people don't want to listen to a, a white person on this, on, on issues of racial justice. So I could imagine that, um, you know, that that would perhaps present a challenge in the work that you do. It does present a challenge. But what we were talking about before you asked this question was about wealth mm. and access. What we're talking about now is awareness. Mm-hmm. And most of the people I interface with, I would say, could benefit from additional awareness. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that correctly? <laughs> I, you are... You're crushing it. Each thing that you've said, it's been, it's is. look, if this is you, I think it's like 5 p.m. You're on the East Coast. Yeah. Like this is, if this is you at 5 p.m., just nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> look, I, I mean, I think at its core, right? You think about most people have never met a transgender person. Most people, um, depends on where you live. So I shouldn't say most people, but there are people who, maybe don't have any Black friends, don't have any Latinx friends, um, may not have ever interfaced with a DACA student, someone who is an undocumented immigrant in this country. So I think the awareness factor is something that we have to embrace, all of us, to say, I don't know and I would like to learn more and I'm going to take the responsibility and attach it to myself and not assign it to someone else to learn more and not be embarrassed that I don't know, but I will take the responsibility to learn more. And that is what this opportunity presents. You know, the yeah. awareness factor is something that we have to embrace. And hopefully that creates an environment where we are assigning value <laughs> to everyone that walks in the door, regardless of who they are and what they look like. Because I would say there are instances where I've walked into a gay bar when I was younger. I don't do that anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you can see the value that people assign to the person walking in the door just based on how they react. That is not only in a gay bar, it's also in a professional setting. It's also in a, in, a, in a social setting outside of a bar. And you could say, well, that's because of a lack of awareness or a lack of, um, you know, interaction with people of color. But I, I think ultimately, when I think about this issue is how, how do we get to the point where we can see beyond ourselves and understand that we have to assign value to other people? And this opportunity that we are going through, I I keep on framing it as an opportunity because it is, uh, hopefully allows us to get to that point where we can go to the next, the next threshold, the next mountain that we're jumping on. Yeah, I think I do appreciate 
the framing is an opportunity. I really do. I mean, you know, here's here's my experience in that that informs how I look at this too. Is you know, I grew up in I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, very predominantly white area, very Republican conservative. Um, you know, nobody wasn't what um, everyone's Christian. Most people are Catholic, and when I um, when I got to college. I immediately joined, get ready, the campus Republicans. I, the first time I could vote, I voted for George W. Bush. I had a, an absolute limitation and lack of understanding when it came to what the systems I was participating in actually stood for. Because they were, the way they were framed for me as a hmm. child was normative, um, uh, not just correct, but predominant, like this is how people feel, you know? And I, I am so, I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of weeks about how much gratitude I have for my queerness, because like the likelihood that I would have at all been able to move in the political spectrum, most people don't get that opportunity in their life. Like, and especially uh, not white people, because the mirrors all look like us. So, you know, you're looking in the mirrors, looking back at you, you're killing it, you know, and you just, you just keep going. And so, um, you know, I think about the, I was forced to decide what I believed in. Mm-hmm. And I have been continually forced in my life. And, um, and that is what this moment feels a little bit like to me is, is it's a forced reframing, you know, it's an opportunity, but it's also, it's also the opportunity comes from pressure and that can be very positive. Mm. You know, that is something that I think, I just, I don't think, I don't think, op, I think opportunity without pressure. So in my case, I had to learn to accept myself and I was from a community that said, you're, you know, you're, you are, that negated my experience. So I had to move into mm-hmm. a space where I could accept myself. So it was, it was the opportunity, but it was also pressure. Cause literally it's like, I either was going to hate myself forever, or I was going to accept myself. And if I chose to accept myself, then that meant that I had to challenge all the things that I thought. And so, you know, it's opportunity mixed with pressure is what I'm seeing right now. Um, I think I, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, people are seeing the opportunity because of the pressure yeah. that they're facing, external pressure in some cases, internal pressure, but they're seeing what is happening across the country and being forced to ask themselves some pretty difficult and challenging questions, which then presents the opportunity, uh, you know, in the voting context, uh, or it's not only voting, but I've been saying peaceful protests plus voting equals change. And as we think about the protest movement, um, it is not limited to this time, right? We had the protest rioting movement that has influenced the civil rights movement and influenced the LGBTQ civil rights movement. We are only here in this modern LGBTQ space because of transgender and gender nonconforming Black and Latinx advocates that fought back in California and in New York. And then the gay rights movement, as they called it back then, was created. And now we have the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. Yeah. So you're right. The pressure 
sort of influences and informs the opportunity. I want to ask you about, you know, you said peaceful protest. And I want to, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you want to at all indicate why, why it feels necessary to, to you to include the word peaceful in there. Well, I think as a lawyer, because <laughs> I am, so, and, and I think about what does the Constitution and the laws, and some would say that's a, you know, that's a difficult paradigm to operate in, but just for purposes of this conversation, we have a constitutional right to protest. And the reason I frame it that way is because what I saw a week and a half ago in D.C., where Donald Trump is, you know, pouring tear gas over protesters who were doing nothing more than peaceful protesting. That is a constitutional right that we all have. And we should never forget that. Same, we have a constitutional right to make sure our voices are heard at the ballot box. So when we see voter suppression efforts, when we see polling stations that are closed, when they refuse to return our request for absentee balloting, they are affecting our constitutional right to have our voices heard. So that's why I frame it that way, because we, I think some people are not fully appreciating that this is a constitutional right that you have to yeah. walk out of your house, to scream if you need to, as loud as you want to <clears throat> for your rights. Yeah. And I, re- I really appreciate you talking about also the, the moment where you said um, that the law can be a difficult paradigm. And so I think, you know, it's, that's also what's kind of exciting to me about this moment is looking at the range of conversation that can be created. Cause like you can be over here saying, you know, legally, this is what we absolutely have to be allowed. And then there can be somebody over here saying, and also like straight up, um, the laws are broken, you know, and, and that there's space for all of that. And that you as an individual don't have to occupy all of that space. You know, you can, you can simply say like, like, like look at, um, you know, Lafayette square and look at, and look at this moment and someone else can take up the mantle of, okay. And also look at, you know, generational wealth and how that, means that right. I don't necessarily have to respect the big box store that has <laughs> opened in my neighborhood and, 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 and different folks can um, occupy different space because this is not a movement where every single person has to hold all views and do all labor. Right. And I think uh, you're so right because this, this moment allows us an opportunity to have that conversation. So people understand Why is it that you are rioting, for example? Because they may be challenging our entire institutional construct of capitalism, that it is structured in such a way to oppress people of color. It is structured in a way to further marginalize people. So they are rejecting an entire construct and paradigm. And just saying peaceful protesting is what they should do doesn't really answer the question that they're trying to answer, which is how do we get beyond this infrastructure that was created on our backs that further marginalizes us? Well, I'm going to challenge the entire infrastructure in order to create a moment for change. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I have seen discussed public at the at the level of publicly for the first time, this idea of because I think so often when people talk about something like rioting, it's um, 
something that's happening um like ad high it has no it has no purpose and it's out of control and it has no you know forethought so i just it's just been really interesting to see oh my gosh we can actually begin to have some of these conversations like on cnn you know i mean these conversations are not new in the in the in you know communities of color and black communities they're not new for activists but some of this stuff is like pretty new for the <laughs> Washington Post or whatever, like, you know, like there's some pretty new stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and to your to your earlier point, it it completely challenges how we process information in our entire, you know, the worlds that we create for ourselves where we can safely function. These conversations challenge us because it forces us to think outside of those boxes which I think is exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It's, it is I exciting. think it's exciting because it forces us to really challenge how we see ourselves, challenge how we see other people, and most importantly, how do we assign value? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, yes, it's, it's, that's, that's beautifully stated. Where are, you, where are you from? Where did you grow up? <laughs> I don't know this answer. So I have a long tortured answer for you. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was born in like in Monrovia in no, in Maryland, in the United States. My parents came to the U S for school. My father went to school in uh, at Georgetown and Howard. My mother went to school in Virginia and they had me left when I was about a year old and went back to Liberia, West Africa, which is where my parents are from. My father ended up running for office. He became the first mayor of, Mon of Monrovia, which is the capital city. My uncle became the president of Liberia. And I had this incredibly privileged, yeah, I know, privileged experience as a young kid that who had anything and everything they could want until the military coup and we lost everything. There was a military coup on April 12, 1980. Uh, my father was... Uh, came and my mother and my father came and woke us up and told us that we had to leave. There were rebels shooting at our front door and we had to escape from our house. And they ultimately caught up with us and arrested my father, incarcerated him for about 18 months. Uh, I learned that evening they assassinated my uncle. So the president of Liberia was assassinated. And we lived under house arrest for about three years. And then my father sought asylum here in the United States uh, because I am a U.S. citizen. That was uh, a positive, I think, uh, factor in the U.S. granting him asylum. Uh, but uh, my family ultimately migrated to the U.S. and uh, went to school in the suburbs of D.C., went to college in Maryland, and then law school in Philadelphia and became a lawyer, clerked for a federal judge, worked at a major law firm, ran a few companies, uh, was a staff attorney at Lambda Legal, where I litigated the, the marriage equality case in New York. And then uh, I joined government, and I ultimately became the chief counsel for Governor Cuomo in New York. And that was an incredible experience from you know, helping to draft the marriage equality law to working on criminal justice reform, working on paid family leave. It was really one of the most rewarding 
uh, professional experiences of my life. And now I am running the human rights campaign. Wow. Yeah. That, that is a Just pretty... a, a truncated version of my story. Yeah, I will say, I mean, definitely... Um... When I said, where are you from? That is, that is what an, <laughs> what an answer you have. It's difficult because, you know, I, and, and that's also one of the challenges of thinking about identity. Yeah. Um, the, a simple question, where are you from, forces me to think about, well, is it where I grew up? Is it where I was born? Is it how I identify? And all of those things have value for me. Uh, so I think that's also a part of this conversation as we think about self-identification, as we think about value, and as we think about how we interact with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! What about, I'm curious, um, and I just don't know the answer to this. So in the family that you grew up in, uh... Mm -hmm. Queerness would have been valued how? <laughs> Let's just say not valued or or rejected is probably a better term, <laughs> phrase. Um, my father was a strict disciplinarian, very traditional West African man. Uh, he's no longer alive. My mother also passed a few years ago. She was a very religious woman. And I learned as a young child that at least I had this concept in my head that I thought all other kids thought the same way. I love how kids create these stories and they think <laughs> it's true. But so I did that. Sure. And I thought, oh, yeah, I think boys are attractive. And I think all other boys think the same way, but we're not allowed to say anything to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I, and I, I thought that I for you. such a long time. Um, but you know, my father had said when I was a kid at the dining table, if any of my children are ever, ever turn out to be gay, I will disown them where that came from. I have no idea. Um, and I remember eating at the dinner table thinking, oh, I think he knows something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so when I, when I came out several decades later, uh, he did disown me. And uh, it was too difficult for him to process, uh, to have his child, his son, uh, be, as in his words, a homosexual. So 
he disowned me and it took him a long time to come around. But he eventually, I, I don't want to say that my father accepted because I don't think he got to that point. I think he understood that I couldn't change my sexual orientation. And so he managed our relationship in that space. Oh, that is that I have to do like a full exhalation. That's really, that's, I, um, my heart really goes out to you on, on the way you're saying that I really understand. Um, you know, when I first came out to my parents, there was a, there was a long period of time when it was absolutely not okay. And then there was a period of time that looked more like management of that understanding. And they're in a very different place now, but I know, you know, it's not always perfect. And I certainly will say, I just know how painful it can be to feel Mm. that somebody is managing a thing that by the time they were there, I was, no, this is actually awesome, you know, and that dissonance, that is tough, you know, in a, in a, in a familial relationship. So my heart really goes out to you. That's really, that's, that's, that's very challenging. And the thing is very challenging. It's very challenging also, and also for parents, because I see this all the time, less so now than years ago. The child comes out as LGBTQ, or the teenager, or the adult, depending on when they come out. The parents react in however they react. That reaction shifts once the person brings home the other. (laughs) Yeah, once I came home with a boyfriend, it became a thing. <laughs> sure. And it exacerbated their concerns, their fears, and made it even more difficult for them to, I think it made it easier for them to understand that this wouldn't change because they thought it was a phase, but it also made it more difficult for them to process. Yeah. Yeah. I also, the, the moment that you were talking about it, the, you know, sitting with your dad at the table and him saying, I wouldn't accept a child that was gay there in, I have not actually seen this elsewhere, but in the movie Moonlight, where there is that moment where the young child is like, um, he's called a slur that applies to him and then has that conversation where It's like a moment where he is given love for if that slur could possibly be true. Mm-hmm. There's just, I, I, that, I have never seen anything like that elsewhere. That moment of mm. holding space for like that feeling when somebody names the thing and the thing might be true and to see like a to see somebody respond in a loving way at that time i just i remember when i watched that movie that 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 is still that's that's the moment for me that i was just like i i've never seen this elsewhere i can't, this is incredibly um yeah. this is aspirational you know this is this is yeah this is well, what, what i, I would wish for all this is what i wish for all as well Because if you imagine if all kids are fully accepted for who they are, what they could become. 
you think of how they can fully realize themselves and without fear and understand their capacity, right? Because I used to say this to all of my friends. I said, we're all walking around as hurt people. Right? We carry around our baggage with us yeah. from our childhood, from you know, our teenage years, from the first heartbreak. But some of those seminal moments that define our experiences, we carry around with us for a very long time. And for some of us, it affects the vision of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It affects our capacity and what we, think is, uh, what we think we can accomplish. And it also affects our value and how we see ourselves. And as a result, affects our relationships and who we're attracted to. So yes. let's not even get into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's not get into that. <laughs> well, it was very well said. It was very well said. Uh, I want to ask you about something that you mentioned just sort of offhand. You said your mom was very religious. What mm-hmm. faith tradition was she a part of? Uh, my mother was Baptist and my father was Methodist. So you can imagine what happened on Sundays. <laughs> Every Sunday, there was a fight about where we would wow. go. Wow. Either a Methodist church or a Baptist church. My father won on most Sundays because going to a Baptist church means that you have to allot uh, two and a half, three hours in most cases, at least my experience. Not mono- being monolithic about Baptist churches. I'm just saying that's my experience before I get some hate mail. The second, (laughs) my father, Methodist, it was an hour tops. We were in and out. So my father would say, (laughs) I don't have the time (laughs) to go to a three-hour church. And he would win. And there were some times where we went to the Baptist church and they were very different experiences. But both my parents were very engaged with their religions. And was was this in Liberia? Yes. And so that's another thing that I, when you, when you said that, you know, it struck me as I was imagining that it was probably a, a Christian faith and how complicated that also is in terms of, you know, thinking about identity because, um, I mean, were these black led churches? Yes. All black led churches. And it continued when we came to the U S So we continued to go to church Mm -hmm. every Sunday, New Year's Eve. So I never, when I was a kid, there was no, we're going out to party on New Year's Eve. It was, we're going to church. Yeah. (laughs) So I've been thinking about this a lot. So, I mean, I'll just, I'll just, yeah, I'll I'll give you some, like this very personal context on what I've been thinking about. So I I, uh, have been taking some divinity classes. You know, I I wanted to be a... priest as a younger person. Turns out you can't be if you're a woman, but I have been <laughs> successful stand-up comic. And I'm wondering if there, I am honestly wondering about getting my master's in divinity. So I've been taking mm. these classes and um, I have been taking classes throughout uh, COVID-19 stuff, but then moving into um the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it has been very interesting to watch white 
church leaders and Black church leaders try to communicate with each other at all at this time? Mm-hmm. Because, I, because I have heard um, some white folks talk about this as an issue that is outside of, as a political issue that is outside the faith, which makes me uh, lose my mind and raise my hand and speak up. And also, you know, I, uh, and also for a black person of faith, that's, that's obviously not true. This is not an outside issue that is outside the faith. This is, this is, <laughs> it's key and central this, the to faith, the faith. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I guess I, Part of my question is, are you, have you held on to any of that? Are you a religious person? Are you a person of faith? I am a person of faith. Uh, I don't know what religious means. Me neither. And I'm not being flipped. I Me don't know neither. what that means. <laughs> so Me I am, <laughs> I'm a person of faith. I'm very spiritual. I started practicing yoga about 20 years ago. I started learning about Buddhism which I gravitated towards. I was taking three bar exams and I was losing my mind and I couldn't focus. And so I started practicing Buddhism and I started practicing yoga and it changed everything for me. I embrace all religions and which is why I say I'm a person of faith because I actually see all religions that I at least know about, they're all talking about the same thing. Oh, you know what? You and I, we have come to the same conclusion. Keep going. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. We have a they're, lot in common. They're all talking about the same thing. Justice, peace, equality, divinity, generally, however broad or narrow you want to define that, but they're all going in the same direction. Now, they may have different deities that they subscribe to or look up to, but ultimately, all of those deities are saying the same thing. So I remember when I went to Shabbat uh, or I went to, you know, um, uh, uh, a Jewish holiday or I went to a Hindu celebration or I went to a Buddhist um, celebration. The themes are generally the same. And so short answer, person of faith, spiritual, and I embrace all religions. Yeah, I think that, you know, the reason I wanted to ask you about that is because coming from the family that you do, where there was this experience with political power, but then also being people of faith that at that time, you know, subscribe to a, a specific religion. I'm thinking about um, just the role that spirituality has to play in this moment for many of the black folks that are experiencing this, you know, that if they're, if they are a person of faith, they're going to go to their church and they're going to learn about it. And then I'm thinking about how complicated that is for a queer person, you know, because we don't, we don't get to have this Mm. safe shelter, you know, anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, not even right. not even books about wizarding are available to us. Like we, we that you know that's what I that's for what for a minute I was like, well then wizarding I guess is the answer. But it's like nope because that's because that's bullshit. So you know it's it's this moment of where is you know where can we where can protection be found? Where can safety be found? Where can you drop your shoulders a little bit? And it 
And it's so complicated for a queer person and so complicated, I can imagine, for a yes. Black queer person. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I just launched uh, with uh, my director of religion and faith, Michael Vasquez, a religion and faith program at the Human Rights Campaign. And so what we're doing before COVID-19, my objective was to do a national tour and engage with leaders of faith all across the country. We started in Philadelphia. We've done a number of events virtually now. But the idea is highlighting for people of faith that we are also, we meaning LGBTQ people, are also people of faith. And we deserve a space in whatever religion they are advancing. And it's been so incredibly insightful and encouraging because we have, some people will say the reform movement within many religions are much more accepting of LGBTQ people uh, because they also understand this fundamental principle, which is, do you really believe in justice? And if God loves me unconditionally, which is a principle that most people would say their religion subscribe to, Help me understand, why is it that God loves me unconditionally, but you don't? Yeah, I'm really happy to hear you're doing this work. I just, I think yeah. that's, I think that's a place to, that, where there's a lot of room to be impactful for younger people, especially, who might be yes. raised in these faiths and, and he, you know, hearing things again and again. It just, it just seems really important. What else are your... So like that, I love that objective. And, you know, what else are your objectives at the moment? <clears throat> I gave a speech in September when I took over the organization. I took over in August and I gave a major speech in September that for me solidifies and defines what I'm trying to do. And the goal for me is getting people to see beyond themselves. How do we get people to see beyond themselves so that they're not investing in an organization only because they personally benefit. They're oh, not <laughs> advancing. They're not supporting a policy position only because it benefits their niece. They're not standing up for justice only because it benefits someone they know. If we can get to the point where we see beyond ourselves and we see value in other people and we are willing to put ourselves on the line for other people who don't look like us. We can affect change and that change will be transformative. That is what I'm trying to do. And as you unpack that, there are a variety of programs, right? I have a transgender justice initiative. We're looking to uh, address the increase in HIV in black and brown communities. We're advancing a litigation initiative. Actually, we just announced that we're going to be suing the Trump administration because they just issued regulations that would affect the LGBTQ community. So, but it all comes down to this fundamental principle. Can we see beyond ourselves? Can we really see beyond ourselves? And if we can, then the transgender person sitting next to you has value. And you will invest in her. Yeah, I think that's well. That's that's very beautiful. Thank you for thank you for that like uh, short pitch. 
I'm on board. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm in it specifically even just thinking about your your organization and like the mental context that I have for it. I it's for me, the context I have for it is traveling the country as the fight for marriage equality is going down and the those bumper stickers that I mentioned earlier, which are the squares, you know, that is how what it truly indicated at the time was how somebody felt about marriage equality. You know, like that was that felt so central to the identity of HRC. And also like it was a shorthand for like a, you know, a bit of safety. Like, okay, so you know, this house is somewhere that people will vote for you, your marriage or whatever. You know, but I think uh interesting times, I would imagine, to helm any organization because that fight happened. That fight was that we did it, you know, or whatever. And and so now the things that need to be fought for next are it's not one thing. There's not, you know, there's not one. Obviously, the most marginalized in our community are, are Black trans women, and that is an area of focus. But there isn't one, you know, like national law that that needs to be fought for, unless there is. Well, and I just don't know about there, it. But. There, there is, there is. So I would say when we're thinking about creating coalitions within our community and getting people to really fight for something putting aside this concept that is important for us to see our, see beyond ourselves for just a minute, um, I think the election presents us with that opportunity. We have someone in the White House <laughs> who is, I'm not going to mince words, is trying to erase us. Oh, yes. Yes. So trying to erase us, that is something that all of us should be invested in. And it's not only this election for this president. But it's also Congress, it's also the city council, it's also the mayor. I said to a young person recently why it's important for them to vote. And it's not only about the presidency. If you care about the police chief in your town, well, guess what? Who appoints the police chief? The mayor. Who oversees the budgets for the police department? City council. So if you vote, you exercise your constitutional rights and you fight against voter suppression which is something we should all believe in, you can effectuate change. The bill that I was talking about shifting to the legislative realm is the Equality Act. The Equality Act is a piece of federal legislation that would prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ people in employment, housing, public accommodation, credit, education, it goes down the list. Right now in 29 states in this country, there are no state law protections, zero. So if I live in a state and there are no state law protections, and I lost my job, and I can't pay my rent, I am more susceptible to being discriminated against. And if the Trump administration is successful at the Supreme Court, arguing that we should not be protected by federal law, I have no protections. Yeah. And that is something that each and every one of us should support. Uh, making sure that every single person who comes out as LGBTQ, who, is, who identifies, I should say, as LGBTQ, has protections for being who they are. With that legislation, I know you said that it's so, and maybe I'm just out of the loop on this. Like, how, 
stages of like, where are you? Where are you in the, my hands are like, where is this thing? Where, where is it in the, in the schoolhouse rock of it all is what? (laughs) Oh, let's talk schoolhouse rock for a second. Where is the legislation in the process? So the legislation has been successfully passed in the house of representatives. It is now waiting and sitting in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell has decided that it will not be voted on in the Senate because they don't support the legislation. Shocking. Which takes us all the way back to voting. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we have a piece of legislation that could protect our siblings in every state in this country. And yet we have members of the U.S. Senate that are not passing that legislation And we have a president or someone who claims to be a president or someone who is serving as an imposter to the presidency, um, refusing to support that piece of legislation as well. And this is, you know, we've been talking for 50 minutes, so I'm not I'm not sure how uh, how you're going to be able to answer this in this in a short time. But, okay, you know, given the. okay, so we just saw what happened in Georgia. Um, Mm -hmm and the breakdown of voting that happened there. Mm -hmm. So speaking to, you know, an audience of podcast listeners, what would you say is the, as you're talking to people about making sure that they vote, what are you recommending that anybody listening here does to do their best to protect their right to vote in a system that we know is not working well? Sure. A number of things. One, please register to vote. Love it. It sounds simple, but please register to vote. Two, please support our initiative that will help us get legislation passed at the federal level to provide funding to states so that we have alternatives to in-person voting. Right now, in many states, you don't have the right to submit your vote by mail. Absentee balloting exists, but it requires that you justify why you are not showing up at the polling station. So we are advancing an initiative that requires all states to provide additional options for people to vote. So that would be the second. How can people support that initiative? Is it donations? Yes, donations to HRC to help us actually advance this initiative. Second, getting involved in contacting their local officials, contacting Congress to make sure that they provide the funding to states so that they can actually enact legislation and provide an infrastructure so that people can vote by mail and have polling stations that are available and make sure that they remove the onerous requirements associated with absentee balloting. This is a laundry list of things that are included in the package. And we're working with Senator um, Kamala Harris and Senator Amy Klobuchar and others to make sure that we advance this initiative. So in addition to sort of supporting the human rights campaign, people could contact their state legislatures, contact Congress. Third, volunteer. We are conducting uh, Tuesdays phone banks and text banks. So every Tuesday, people pick up the phone and they call into one of the seven priority states and we provide all of the information and training and they call potential donors or voters and talk to them about the election 
and why the election is important, making sure they have the information that's accessible and make sure it's accessible to them so that come election day, they're not confused. They understand where to go. They understand the options that are available to them. And most importantly, they understand why they need to vote. I would say those three things are incredibly important. Register to vote, support our vote, uh, a voting initiative, which you can get the information at hrc.org and volunteer. Amazing. I wonder if, um, when we are done with all of this, what I would love is uh, to figure out if there's like an exact link that I can send folks to, like what the what the more specific URL is, or if there's if y'all have a graphic or anything, and we can continue. I will say to listeners, I will attempt to follow up with more information and post it on my socials so that people don't have to just listen and like be ferociously writing down, but you can just go look at my Instagram or Twitter and I'll give you some more information. Um, how does that sound? That sounds great. And they can get that information right now by going to www.hrc.org backslash vote. Amazing. Um, um, and also backslash resources. It's, it's all available on our website and great. they can get that information. Amazing. Well, you know, I want to send you back into what I'm assuming is just the very beginning of your day. <laughs> yes. Oh man. And I want to, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. And, um, I want to ask you if you want to shout out a queero person, place or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Yes. Um, and before I do that, the website www.hrc.org slash backslash election 2020, all of the information is on there. Backslash election 2020. My um, my hero, LGBTQ hero, is James Baldwin. He when, spoke the truth and his words still resonate today. Yeah. Oh, Alfonso, this is a, we are having a, I really, really appreciate you. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.